and open your Bibles to the Gospel of John. We're going to be looking at quite a number of passages this evening from John's Gospel. And so you have a list of those verses before you. And we're going to make one change. We're going to be reading through verse 49 of John 1. So in the first section, John 1, verses 45 through 49, and then the rest as printed there. These are various passages that deal with the apostles themselves, perhaps just simple statements that they make, but telling words that describe for us who they were and what they were doing. So let's give our attention now to the Word of God. We'll begin with John 1 and chapter, or chapter 1 and verse 45. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can any good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And then turn over to John 11. Here, just one verse from verse 16. After Jesus has spoken a number of words about going back into Judea, we read in verse 16, So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. And then in John 14, we'll read verses 5 and 6, and then 19 through 24. Verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not where, know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And then beginning in verse 19. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, 
and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words and the word that you hear is not mine but the father who sent me. And then back a few pages to chapter 12 and verses 1 through 6. Chapter 12, verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Thus far, God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for all the ways in which you describe those men whom you chose and changed by your grace. And we pray that this night, we too might hear your word and that we might learn to look to you and rest in you who has chosen and have changed and will change even more us who serve you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we come this evening to our final message on the lives of the apostles. And some of you might be a lot like Philip, who we looked at last week, the number cruncher. And you might be crunching some numbers right now and saying, wait a minute, it's taken us four weeks to cover five of the 12. And if you add and subtract, you say there's seven more to cover and we're going to do that in one message. Well, let me try to give you an idea of how we're going to do that. Notice in your third point on your outline there that four out of seven of these apostles are listed. And there's not a great deal of space given to cover those men. And there are a couple of reasons for that. The first reason is that we just dealt with the calling of Matthew about two weeks before we started dealing with this list of 12 apostles. So we're not going to repeat that information regarding him. And then we have the three others. James, the son of Alphaeus, the, uh, uh, and then Simon, the zealot, and then Judas, not Iscariot. And scripture has very, very little to say 
about these men. And therefore, we are going to have very little to say about these men. And that only leaves us three that we're going to deal with this evening in some detail. Nathaniel, or Nathaniel, the Americanized version of the name, and then Thomas and Judas Iscariot. And we're going to begin right now with Nathaniel. So we have, first of all, the grace of Christ received by Nathaniel. Nathaniel, or called Bartholomew, in all of the list of apostles, the four lists that we have of these men in the scriptures. He is called Bartholomew because that is his Hebrew name. But it's always a reference to Nathaniel in the Gospel of John, which is the only place where we find other than the list any mention of this man. He's mentioned two times, and one of them is relatively insignificant. You may remember after the resurrection, the disciples have been gathering together. At one point, there are at least seven of them together, and Peter says, I'm going fishing. And the rest of the disciples that are with him say, we'll go with you. And Nathaniel is one of them. That's the it. So it's the reference to Nathaniel in John 1 that reveals several things worth noting. Now we looked at these words last week in reference to Philip. This week we're going to change the angle slightly and we're going to be focusing on Nathaniel and what he has to say. Three things that I want to highlight. Nathaniel was a student of Scripture. He was familiar with the Word of God. When Philip comes to him and says, we have found him of whom Moses and the prophets have spoken. Nathaniel doesn't look at him puzzled. He doesn't say, I have no idea what you're referring to. No, Nathaniel knew the word of God. He knew, like Philip, he knew exactly what Moses had said about him. He knew exactly what the prophets had said about him. And he was, being a student of Scripture, he was interested in the fulfillment of those prophecies. He was interested. He, he had a genuine interest in the fulfillment of those promises. Now, brethren, just for ourselves, take a moment and realize when you study the scriptures, I'm not talking about a, a, a few minutes of reading. That's good to do every day. But when you take the time to meditate upon the scriptures, when you read them, when you study them, when you go to commentaries and look up, what does that mean? When you are studying the word of God, it awakens in you a hunger and a thirst to know more of the things of God. It stirs up your faith in the promises that God has given us in his word. And therefore, it's going to greatly affect 
your prayers. Because you're going to be praying and looking for and expecting God to work according to what he has given us in the word. When you study the scriptures, you're going to see that it causes you to set your thoughts on things that if you had not been studying the word of God, you probably never would have considered. These are the benefits that we see from studying the word of God. And my friends, Nathaniel's, his heart was primed by his love of the word of God. He was ready. He was looking. He was expecting God to work according to his word. His heart was primed and ready to receive the grace of Christ. Just stop and think about this man and how long it took him to become a follower of Jesus Christ. Maybe I could ask it this way. How long did it take you to become a follower of Jesus Christ? How many people talked to you? How many people prayed for you? How many times were you confronted with your need of Christ before you believed in him? Do you know how long it took Nathaniel to become a believer, to become a follower of Jesus Christ? One conversation. We might could summarize it a little differently. It took three sentences. That's it. Nathaniel comes to Jesus, and Jesus says, Behold, an Israelite in whom is no deceit. Nathaniel says, How do you know me? And he says, Before Philip called you, I saw you under the fig tree. And he says, Rabbi, you're the son of God. You're the the king of Israel. It, It was immediate because his heart was ready and expecting and looking to God. And God had already worked in him. Second thing about Nathaniel. Nathaniel was not perfect. Yes, his heart was ready. Yes, he responded to to Philip's declaration and came to Jesus, and it didn't take long. But notice what Nathaniel says. And Philip says, we found him. He's Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel says, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? To put it bluntly, Nathaniel was prejudiced against the people of Nazareth. He didn't have a very high opinion of Nazareth. As a matter of fact, most Jews did not have a very high opinion of Nazareth. It was one of those small, unrefined, uneducated towns, and most people looked down on people from Nazareth. And Nathaniel is one of them. As a matter of fact, I think we could say he regarded them with open disdain and contempt. So he was 
prejudice. Nobody looked at Nazareth as a well-to-do or respected community. And so, my friends, realize, just because you love God and you love his word does not mean that there are not sins lying deep in your heart. And this is one of them that we need to be careful about. And that is to look down upon other people because they don't look like us or they don't talk like us. Maybe they're of a different race or they don't have the the background that we do. And we tend to look down upon them and not expect very much of them. That was what is going on here. Maybe they come from the wrong side of the tracks, we used to say. And we despise them and we are prejudiced against them. Ladies and gentlemen, prejudice blinds people to the truth. And had Nathaniel persisted in this vein, he would not have met Jesus. He would not have come to know him as the king and the savior. So be careful that you don't look down upon those who are poor or of a different race or uneducated or whatever the case may be. The Apostle Paul had to deal with this with the Corinthian church. This was a very proud group of individuals. But what does Paul do in his very first chapter, chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians in verse 26? He says, for you see your calling, brethren, not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble were called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty. And then he tells us in verse 29 why God does it this way. That no flesh should glory in his presence. Brethren, it's all of grace and the work of Christ in the life of Nathaniel was a work of grace changing his prejudiced opinions into love and faithful service the last thing we see about Nathaniel is that he was sincere yes he was not perfect but God had already begun working in this man's heart and life. Jesus said, behold, an Israelite in whom is no deceit. I want you to stop for a moment and let those words sink in. There was no deceit in this man. Unlike so many professing Christians in our day, there was no deceit. There was no hypocrisy 
There was no playing the game, learning the lingo and talking a certain way or acting in a certain way to impress other people or perhaps to please other people. Children, be careful that you don't do Christian things just to please your parents. Young men, be careful that you don't do certain Christian things to please a particular girl, to impress her. Husbands, wives, we all may deal with this at one time or another. Be careful that you're not playing the game, but you're sincere. That you do this because you know this is right, this is good. And there's no deceitfulness or hypocrisy. Brethren, search your hearts Because it's so easy to pretend to say the right things or do particular things. Peter touches upon this when he exhorts those to whom he writes in 1 Peter 1 and verse 22. And he says, love one another fervently, but do it with a pure heart. And so everything we do needs to be done as unto the Lord and not unto men. And it needs to be done from a pure heart, a sincere heart. That's what we see in the person of Nathaniel. Now let's move to the grace of Christ received by Thomas. Now, if I were to ask you this evening, what do you know about Thomas? I would expect that a vast majority would say, ah, doubting Thomas. We all know about doubting Thomas. He's given that name solely because of the expression that's used in John 20 and verse 24. After the resurrection, Jesus appears to a number of the disciples as they're gathered together in the upper room, but Thomas is not there. Later, when Thomas is there, they tell him, he's risen, and we've seen him. What does Thomas say? Unless I can put my finger into the nail prints in his hand, I will not believe that. And so he is referred to as Doubting Thomas. But to characterize this man as one who is always doubtful because of that one incident, I don't think is an accurate picture, nor is it a biblical picture. A much fuller and clearer picture is given in the three references that we have before us. John eleven sixteen. 14.5, and 20.24 and following. We're going to look at the first two of those references. And the first one is John chapter 11. John chapter 11 and verse 16. Now, let me give you just a little bit of background about this. Jesus has been in Jerusalem. They've thrown him out of the city. He is 
gone out into remote regions. He's been ministering there with great success and popularity. But then G hears about Lazarus, his friend. And he says, let us go back to Judea. And all of the disciples say, wait a minute. That is not a good idea. Lord, the last time you were there, they tried to kill you. I don't think we need to be going back to Bethany. Nevertheless, Jesus insists that that is what they're going to do. In verse 7, he says, let's go back. In verse 16, Thomas chimes in. Then Thomas, who is called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now, Thomas might not have been constantly in doubt, but he was constantly pessimistic. That's the way he saw things. For him, the glass was always half empty. He looked at every possible situation in a negative light. That was who Thomas was. Now, my friends, remember, perhaps you have a tendency to be pessimistic, to look at things negatively. Perhaps you know someone who tends, maybe very much tends, to be pessimistic, and everything they see is in a negative light. But here's what I want you to realize. Jesus chooses and uses pessimistic people. He chooses and uses negative people. You might not always enjoy being around them because of it. And his grace can change that attitude. But he still used Thomas in spite of his negative way. And this man, Jesus used and turned him into a very committed follower of Jesus Christ. He was willing to die if need be. He just looked at it from a negative perspective. And then we see the second passage in John 14. In John 14, now most of us, again, are very familiar with these words of what Jesus is doing as he's talking to his disciples on the night before he was to be removed from them and tried and put to death. And he is trying to to guide them and to give them counsel and to encourage them to look to him. He is trying to prepare them for what is coming. And here we see a very significant element and something that each one of us needs to pay close attention to. And that is listening. Listening, especially 
when we are hearing the Word of God. Whenever the Word of God is read or taught or preached, we need to listen and listen closely. Now, if this was the only place where Jesus had dealt with this, maybe we could understand. Jesus begins to say, I'm going away. I'm going to my Father. And you know the way. You know where I'm going. You know the way. And Thomas says, Lord, we don't have any idea what you're talking about. We don't know where you're going. And we don't know how to get there. What are you saying? As I said, if this was the first time Jesus had talked to them about this, we might understand that. But brethren, Jesus has been telling his disciples on multiple occasions. But the problem was they weren't listening. They weren't paying close attention. Jay Adams, in one of our counseling classes, told the story of a sermon that he was preaching one Sunday evening, and it involved a section dealing with how to, to talk to and answer the arguments of Jehovah Witnesses. And three days later, he received a phone call from this woman in his congregation, we'll say her name is Martha, and Martha says, Pastor, you know those verses you were telling me about? About how to answer a Jehovah's Witness? Can you give me those verses again? And he says, Martha, why are you whispering? And she says, well, there's a Jehovah's Witness sitting at my table. And right now, he's winning. <laughs> and he says, Martha, I gave you all those verses. And she says, I know, Pastor, I know. But I didn't think I would ever need them. My friends, any time the Word of God is read by you, by someone else, any time it's being taught, any time it's being preached, listen and listen closely. Pay attention to what is being said. Ask questions if you don't understand it. Do whatever's necessary. Write it down if need be so that you can remember it. You don't know when you will need it. So that is one thing that we learn from Thomas, to pay closer attention. Well, let's look quickly at point three. The grace of Christ received by Matthew, James, Simon, and Judas, not Iscariot. As I mentioned, we just dealt with Matthew in Luke 5, so no need to repeat that. James, the son of Alphaeus, all we have is his name. That's it. We have no other information about him. Simon is called the zealot, or in some cases, the Canaanite, not as being from Canaan, but it is a, a word that means zealous. More than likely, he belonged to, at one point, at a previous time, this lawless political sect 
that was known primarily for one thing, how much they hated the Romans. The one thing that might be of some interest is that Matthew worked for Rome. And the man whom Simon would have gladly killed in his earlier days became his brother in the Lord. And he labored side by side with him. My friends, nothing but the grace of Christ can do that. Maybe there's someone you have an intense dislike for, but the grace of Christ can change that, just as it did for Simon and Matthew. The other individual mentioned here is Judas, the son of James, or not Iscariot. He is called Levius or Thaddeus by Matthew. Jerome, as he wrote his historical records in the fourth century, referred to Judas, the son of James, as Trinominus, a man with three names. And two of those names, both Thaddeus and Levius, are words that mean tender or compassionate. And perhaps we see that in the passage in John 14 and verse 22 when we read that Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? He's very gentle in the way he asks the question. He doesn't rebuke the Lord like Peter, I will never deny you, or not so, Lord. He's not defiant like Thomas saying, unless I put my fingers in the nail prints in his hand, I will not believe. Judas is very compassionate. He's very tender. How, Lord? How, how are you going to do that? And Jesus explains to him that if you love me, You'll keep my words. Striking the way the scriptures equate these two things. If you love me, you will keep my words. And Jesus explains more to him. But let's move to our last point. Instead of the grace of Christ received, we have the grace of Christ rejected by Judas Iscariot. Every time Judas Iscariot is mentioned in Scripture, it is with the added notation, he is the one who is about to betray him, or the one who would be a traitor. Unlike the other disciples, my friends, we've looked at them all, we've seen their sins, we've seen their weaknesses, we've seen their failures, But unlike all those other disciples, Judas, Iscariot, instead of being changed by the grace of Christ, hardened his heart and rejected the grace of Christ. 
He continued at every stage to pursue his ungodly desires, his greed, his dishonesty, his deceitfulness. There are four things that I think Judas can teach us. Number one, Judas stands as a warning. Just how wicked one outside of Christ can become. When you realize that this man didn't just betray innocent man in the Lord Jesus Christ, but he became a party to the murder of the Son of God. It's almost more than we can fathom. But it shows us just how wicked a man can become. You hear people all day long say, well, I believe that basically people are good. They need to look at Judas Iscariot because he shows us just how wicked an unbeliever can be. Secondly, Judas reveals just how hard the human heart can be. You realize that Judas, for three and a half years, was exposed to almost every possible spiritual blessing to the maximum level. He was a man who, who walked with Jesus. He was a man who had fellowship with the Lord of glory. Here's a man who sat and heard the instruction of Christ, a man who was encouraged by our Savior's prayers for his people and by his teaching. And yet he denied the Lord. Here, Judas also displays just how deceitful the human heart can be. You realize that no one suspected Judas. When Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me, they didn't all point the finger, we know it's him. They didn't have any reason. Judas was a master at hypocrisy. Judas preached the gospel. Judas perhaps healed people in the name of Jesus. And he, he, he carried on this charade to the very end so that at the last moment when he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, he goes up and says, Hail, Rabbi, and kissed him. To the very end, Judas played the game. He carried on this charade. And lastly, I think Judas once again provides us with an excellent illustration of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Just like we've seen on other occasions, but here particularly, you realize God ordained the death of Christ. He planned it. It was part of his plan. And our Savior even says in Luke 22, in verse 22, 
The Son of Man goes as it has been appointed. But woe to him by whom he is betrayed. So we know God appointed it. But no one forced Judas to act and do the things that he did. He acted freely. He did exactly what he desired to do. And so, my friends, we see in all of these 12 men a vast variety, different backgrounds, different personalities, different gifts, and yet they were all chosen by the grace of Christ, and they were all changed by the grace of Christ, except for Judas, who rejected that grace. My friends, has Christ called you? Has he chosen you? Is he changing you? If he hasn't, Realize he is the only one that can change your heart. Call upon him. Ask him. And he will do it. He is the one who changes lives so that we may glorify him. Paul puts it this way, knowing that it is the Lord who works in you both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. We could try as hard as we might and not accomplish what Christ wants in our lives. But he can and will do it. It's he who works in us, even to will it, even to accomplish it. So may we take the lives of these men and use them May we consider carefully their weaknesses and failures and seek to avoid them in our own lives. And may we see how Christ has blessed them and used them for his glory. And may he do the same with us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for all of these men and for the way your grace shines in their lives and the changes that you were able to bring to pass. Would you work in us, Lord? You are the potter. We are the clay. Mold and shape us after the image of your son. Conform us to his image and not to the world in which we live. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Let's take a few moments, pray about these things and God's work and grace in us.